Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company. I hope you had a wonderful long weekend and congratulations to the Socceroos. What a performance. And they're through to the World Cup, which is big money for that sport. ADH TV, where you're watching now, is available to download on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. There it's all on your screen. Watch on your television, the big TV on Apple TV or Google Play Store or download on your phone or iPad live and on demand. Everyone's getting used to it, which is wonderful. Remember, we exist to represent your concerns and the viewpoints of common sense Australians. That's why tonight we'll speak with the New South Wales State MP for Lismore, Janelle Saffin. We don't go away on issues we raise on this program. She's a remarkable local MP on a mission to ensure that flood ravaged communities are not forgotten in the recovery phase and they have been forgotten. What about this plea last night? And it's got worse in the last several hours. I'll bring him up to date in a couple of, in a couple of moments. But last night to households from the Australian energy market operator, what on earth do these people do except cause grief, urging households to conserve power to avoid blackouts? Warnings like these make us sound like Bangladesh or Pakistan. We're a first world country for God's sake. This is a huge, massive dereliction of duty by our politicians, flawed policy, and one which I've been warning about for years and years. As a result, Queensland narrowly missed a night of blackouts, but there are warnings that another increase to power bills could be on the cards as the energy crisis deepens. Sydney's northern beaches weren't so lucky. Electricity distributor Osgrid said suburbs affected on Monday night Last night included Beacon Hill, French's Forest, Narrowena, Cromer and DY. This is happening because of the premature closure of coal-fired power plants meeting political ideology. I've warned until I'm blue in the face that without coal-fired power, we are cactus. It is that simple. What does the new Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen have to say about it? Not much, except his spokeswoman described the energy crisis and these blackouts is a challenging situation. You bet it is for pensioners struggling to turn their heaters on in the middle of winter, for households with children needing to use appliances and devices, even to do their homework, everything including the homework and banking. And for many, their very work itself is done online, hence requiring power. Chris Bowen and his predecessors are the problem. They set the policy, the genuflecting to renewables, and decarbonisation by Labor and the Liberals is the root cause of this mess. Chris Bowen, wake up. And Matt Keane, either go away or wake up. Net zero means a return to the caveman years, where we huddle around campfires for heat and use smoke signals to communicate with one another. Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers have a lot to address. There is a Labor crisis, an energy crisis, an aged care crisis, and an inflation crisis, but above all, a policy crisis. Governments past and present are on the wrong energy train. And if anyone from the coalition wants to argue it's all Labor's fault, they ought to be prepared to cop a blunt and truthful assessment from me. I have warned for years this would happen. It is a consequence of misguided policy. Tell me what you think, email me, Jones at adh.tv. Well, look, every new government must be given a chance to settle in and find its feet. Being in government is not an easy task. And the first thing that happens to a new government is that the bureaucracy tries to take charge. In Canberra, there are bureaucrats everywhere, approximately 250,000. But the election was on May 21. Today's June 14, that's three and a half weeks ago. It's time to both mark the government and warn the government. We should not pretend now that the energy crisis we face is of the new government's making. It is not. As I've just said, I've warned for years that this net zero nonsense, arguing that carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, was going to somehow destroy the world. I've argued that this was a national economic suicide note, and here we are. Now, warnings only a matter of hours ago 
from the Australian energy market operator of possible power interruptions from late this afternoon. They're talking about maximum power load interruptions in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. The forecast was that Queensland would be impacted from 4.30pm today until midnight, New South Wales from 5pm until midnight and further interruptions tomorrow and potential power interruptions for Tasmania, South Australia and Victoria tomorrow evening. You'll note Western Australia is not included. They have a gas reservation policy, which I've been advocating for years. Now, of course, price is a barometer of scarcity. So as a result, the cost of power has risen so rapidly that the regulator has stepped in to place a cap on the wholesale price of electricity in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. Now, look, make no mistake, we are in trouble. I made the point last week that we still receive about 60% of our energy from coal-fired power stations, and we're again being told about a series of breakdowns and maintenance outages at coal-fired power stations. Last week, we were told, quote, these coal-fired power stations have been shut down for maintenance. It's an ageing fleet, unquote. I've warned over and over again that the previous government and this government keep talking about transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. And they're giving billions of dollars to the renewable energy industry to make that happen. We're now told that gas exporters are going to face more pressure over their supply to the domestic market. Again, I have argued we should have a gas reservation policy where on issuing licences for gas exploration, one condition would be that a certain percentage be kept for domestic use. But can we again take stock of our senses? So, gas will save the day, will it? Well, as Graham Lecty from Brunswick West in Victoria writes today, the last time I looked, gas was a fossil fuel. And building more East Coast terminals at vast expense to handle gas is a definition of madness when there is another fossil fuel, coal, that can generate all the energy we need, unquote. Well done. So that's gas the fossil fuel that's meant to save the day when Bant, the Greens and the Teals want all fossil fuels gone by 2030. And now crocodile tears because of breakdowns and maintenance outages in the East Coast's coal-fired power stations. And these breakdowns have, we are told, exacerbated an energy supply crunch. Well, of course they have. Isn't this the consequence of policies of the previous government, which are the mirror image of the policies of this government. Only today we hear that the Energy Minister and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen, meeting with the US Special Envoy for Climate Change, that dud, John Kerry, agreeing that climate change was a key reform agenda for the government. And Mr Kerry warmly welcomed the new government's approach. Look, this mob still don't get it. It is true that there have been breakdowns and maintenance outages in coal-fired power stations. But I said last week, if you're a board member of an outfit that owns a coal-fired power station, would you put your hand up to open another coal-fired power station or to update maintenance or revamp your existing ageing coal-powered facility? Why would a corporate owner with half a brain commit capital to the upkeep of a coal-fired power station when this government, like the last, is mouthing renewable energy production, which never materialises adequately, but government's prepared to subsidise this renewable stuff to the tune of almost $3 billion a year up to 2030. I've said over and over again, an energy policy can be written in one line. Energy must be available, reliable and affordable. Renewable energy is none of these. Graham Lloyd is the environment editor for the Australian newspaper. He has written with clarity about these issues for years. He wrote last week, and I quote, too many people with too little understanding have turned a problem of physics and engineering into one of politics and economics. He said the breakdown in electricity supply is as serious as it has been predictable. Engineers know that grinding the coal sector into the ground won't make renewables produce electricity when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. He said leaving gas in the ground, as New South Wales and Victoria have done, won't power 
a backup supply, stealing back supplies of gas from companies that have contracted to sell it elsewhere will compound the problems, unquote. And then the clincher, and I quote, Graham Lloyd, governments generally don't last long enough to reap the product of the chaos they sow, unquote. If the current energy crisis isn't chaos, what is it? I'll tell you what it is, a product of appalling policy. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the splendidly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan, Peggy Grandy. Peggy, thank you again for your time. The headlines around the world, I don't know in America, seem to be salivating about Donald Trump and the prime time public hearing over what happened on January 6, 2001. Before I ask you for a comment, I might just share some of those headlines with our viewers. One headline says, the violence was no accident. Another says it was Trump's last stand. Trump was central to the conspiracy. Another, former US President Donald Trump incited the January 6th Capitol attack and was central to a sweeping and methodical conspiracy to overturn the 2020 US election. Another, in the entire 246 year history of the United States, there was surely never a more damning indictment presented against an American president than was outlined last week. And finally another, it was a prime time public hearing into the most egregious attempt to subvert a US election in recent history. Peggy, it's on again. What do you make of it? What are the American people making of it? Well, thank you as always, Alan, for having me on. And everybody sees this for what it is. And it is political theater, even to the point now that instead of it just being a hearing or a presentation of facts, they've hired an ABC documentary producer to produce it like it's a primetime television special. So the American people are seeing through this. And really, at the end of the day, it's not about finding the truth about what happened on January 6th. It is trying to prevent Donald Trump from ever stepping foot into the White House again in 2024. And so people are seeing through this. They're not presenting evidence. They're editing evidence. They are cutting videos. They're eliminating words from tweets. And so it's not meant to be evidentiary. It's meant to be persuasive to their point of view. We know the deck's been stacked and it's against Donald Trump. It's said that it is, and I quote, a bipartisan House committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. But much of the evidence was outlined by the lead Republican on the committee, Liz Cheney, who has denounced Donald Trump from day one. And she also denounced her Republican colleagues who defended Donald Trump. And isn't the chairman of this select committee a Democrat, Benny Thompson, and he called it Trump's last stand and a desperate chance to halt the transfer of power. So if you add Benny Thompson to Liz Cheney, how does Trump come out of all of this? As you say, the public will wake up to it, I guess. Well, nobody pre pretends to think this is a bipartisan committee. We know that Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, was allowed to put five people on the committee. Nancy Pelosi rejected them. Um, a few of them, Kevin McCarthy pulled the rest. And so Nancy Pelosi appointed two anti-Trumpers on the committee. Liz Cheney in her first day of statements actually conflicted the very point that they were trying to say. She said that at the rally, he incited this violence, but then she also admitted that there was a lot of intelligence leading up to the rally and up to the day's events that indicated there was gonna be great instability and unrest in Washington that day. And so how you square that, I'm not sure, but nobody believes for a moment that this is a bipartisan committee that's looking for truth. They're just looking to condemn once again Donald Trump like they did with their two sham impeachment hearings. That's a very interesting point you make about the intelligence being available to know that something was likely to happen at the Capitol. Now, Fox News opted not to show the hearing, but surely Sean Hannity was right when he attacked the committee for not focusing on the breakdown of security at the Capitol, for which Nancy Pelosi is responsible. She is. And Donald Trump actually saw this intelligence days ahead of time. He approved that the National Guard could be deployed and Nancy Pelosi chose not to deploy them. 
Anytime there's a large bipartisan and both houses gathering of Congress, we see it with the State of the Union or anytime both houses of, are meeting in the Capitol, we see additional security measures being taken. And so on a day that was so consequential when the certification of the election was going to take place, when we knew that there was gonna be a massive rally on the mall, why aren't the questions being asked about what Nancy Pelosi knew and why she didn't secure the Capitol? We look even today at the Supreme Court. Additional security measures have been put up ahead of potential um, cases being released and decisions being released. And so why Nancy Pelosi didn't do that, we don't know. Um, that's the question we should be asking, not about Donald Trump. It's also day. said, you did right, it's also said the panel was trying to build a case that Trump was involved in, quote, a criminal conspiracy against democracy, that he intentionally summoned a mob, I mean, this is fanciful, to stop the transfer of power to Joe Biden. Peggy, will this panel change the public view of those events? Many political strategists say that's unlikely. People are not paying attention to this. They're not gonna be swayed by this. They know the truth of what happened. And in fact, if anything, it's vindicating Donald Trump because on January 6th at his rally, he warned what would happen during a Joe Biden presidency and he was mocked for it. He said, gas is gonna be $5 a gallon. We're gonna lose our stature on the world stage. We're no longer gonna be energy independent. Our borders are gonna be wide open. And people mocked and laughed at him but he's unfortunately been proven to be completely right about everything he said that day. Do you think the argument can be validated that this committee therefore is inviting the Justice Department to pursue the matter against Trump in a grand jury and a court of law? And Cheney, Liz Cheney, some argued, was addressing the Attorney General when she argued, quote, you will hear about plots to commit seditious conspiracy on January 6, a crime defined in our laws as conspiring to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States. Peggy, what's the likelihood of this matter going to a grand jury? Well, it's not going to, and it's not intended to. They intentionally make these egregious, just wild accusations. They know for a fact they can't ever prove them or back them up, but that's not the point. The sensationalizing of it and to make people once again think that Trump is the king of chaos, that's their goal. It will never go to a court of law. People know the truth of what happened and what they're presenting is not the full truth. Well, let's just talk about this New York Times because there's a story that the New York Times buried and refused to talk about a particular issue, and that is in relation to uh, Mr. Justice Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now, shouldn't a commission, if we're gonna do this business with Donald Trump, be empaneled to investigate what led to the assassination attempt on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and why was this covered up? So what's the background of this, Peggy? Well, you talk about the New York Times bearing this, really not one major media outlet has been covering this. And unfortunately, this is the natural progression that we get. When they turn a blind eye to doxing, which is the practice of releasing public figures, private personal home information, phone numbers, addresses, things like that. So they've been doxing these conservative justices. They've been allowing protests and um, mobs to gather outside their houses, and that's illegal. They're not allowed to gather for the purposes of influencing a case that's pending before the court. And so we don't need a commission. We need for this White House and this Department of Justice to go and arrest those people who are breaking the law. When you allow the protesting, when you allow the doxing, and you don't call a uh, call it out, condemn it, or hold them accountable, then unfortunately, this is the natural progression of events. We know that it would be covered very differently if it was a liberal justice that had been maybe, yeah. you know, gone after by a conservative yeah. activist. Um, but we know that there's two tiers of justice and we're seeing it play out right now. This 26-year-old Nicholas Roski has been arrested near Kavanaugh's home. He allegedly arrived in a cab at 1 a.m. carrying a rucksack, quote, full of burglary tools. He then recognised US Marshals surveilling the residence of the Supreme Court Justice and turned himself in. But he did tell law enforcement authorities, he, quote, intended to kill Kavanaugh. Now, Peggy, is this related to Democrat Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, in relation to the Roe v. Wade case and the likelihood of overturning Roe v. Wade, which you and I have talked about 
and returning abortion regulation to the states. And Schumer pledged publicly that Kavanaugh, amongst others, would pay the price. Now, critics say that Schumer has really inspired this kind of response. He has, and we were just talking about Donald Trump being accused of inciting violence. Um, he talked about, Trump talked about peacefully and patriotically going to, the pro, going to the Capitol to make your voices heard. What Schumer did was overtly and intentionally inciting violence. And I would also add to that Maxine Waters, who said, you get in the faces of these people who work for Trump. You go up to them at the grocery store, at their home, um, where they shop, um, at the gas station. And so these are overt, violent accusations and threats. And so it's no wonder that the people who follow this leadership are going to take it to the next step. This leadership should be calling that out. They should be putting an end to it immediately. It shouldn't matter whether it's a conservative or a liberal justice. They should be allowed to do their job and they should be protected in doing it, and especially their children. This should not be allowed to stand. This okay. White House needs to stop it and condemn it. Well, the Republicans are saying that justice, there is a House committee, as we've talked about, investigating the Capitol riot. A congressional commission should be impaneled to investigate what led to this assassination attempt on Mr Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, Roski told police he wanted to, quote, give his life purpose by killing Kavanaugh. Now, Peggy, the argument is that left-wing lawmakers routinely compare conservatives to Adolf Hitler, prompting one commentator to say that in the suspect's mind, he probably thought he was literally killing a modern day national socialist dictator. Others are saying the New York Times buried the Kavanaugh assassination story because Kavanaugh is a conservative. Peggy, what conclusions do we draw from both these stories? Well, unfortunately, by the mainstream media and by the leadership on the left and out of this White House, by their silence, they are telling us that they actually condone this type of behavior. And so the people that follow them are going to continue to be increasingly violent and threatening toward conservatives of all kinds. And it really needs to come to a stop. It's gone too far. But this is the natural progression when you don't stop it and when the leadership is either condoning it or by their silence, they're condoning it as well. Yes, it's true. Just Finally, on that, I remember before the results of the last presidential election, there were businesses in America boarding up their shops because they knew that if Donald Trump had won, they would have all been attacked. In other words, this is quite legitimate. If a conservative prevails, then any rule can be broken and it doesn't matter the consequences. It's a divided political world, Peggy. Well, we should be united in condemning this behavior. Definitely. And really, you know, the left talked about all the riots this summer is mostly peaceful when you could see fires burning in the background and looting taking place. And by contrast, and I'm certainly not condoning what happened on January 6th, but even the committee showed images of people walking slowly through the velvet rope stanchions in the middle of the Capitol and looking up and around at the art like they were walking through a museum. So we know there's two standards and um, we're seeing that plainly play out in both Kavanaugh and in the January 6th committee Good hearings. Great to talk to you, Peggy. Great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. That's Peggy Grandy. Wonderful Thank insights, you, wonderful insights into two contrasting issues capturing, well, not headlines, the Kavanaugh story has been hidden. But of course, the Trump headlines go everywhere designed to demean and damage Donald Trump. Peggy Grandy in America. Well, with the current state of governments in Australia, the word crisis continues to be used and regrettably with undeniable justification. We're going to have to keep talking and parents are going to have to take up the cause. Didn't Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard in 2007 announce an education revolution? I'm sure they were well-intentioned, but no one seems to care about what goes on in the classroom. We're one and a half years behind Singapore students when it comes to reading and science. We're three years behind them in maths. We used to be fourth in the world in relation to reading. We're now 16th. We used to be eighth in science. We're now 17th. We used to be 11th in maths. We're now 29th. I remember last year the then Federal Education Minister Alan Tudge, with good intentions, saying he would reverse this decline. He can't. All Canberra can provide is money. In the year 2021, total education expenditure was $116 billion. $116,000 million. The poor old taxpayer. Because our kids can't punctuate, they can't spell, 
They know little about history and geography. They've never heard of Burke and Wills. They don't know why Melbourne's called Melbourne. They can go through a whole secondary school experience in six years and never read an English novel or recite a verse of poetry. And generally speaking, discipline is diabolical. Yet an education system without discipline, content or hard work is not education. None of what is good can happen without rote learning, spelling bees, learning your tables, knowing that Melbourne's on the Yarra River and Mackay's on the Pioneer River. Last year, La Trobe University offered a short course in teaching phonics, the tried and tested method of teaching young children how to spell and how to read. A thousand teachers signed up because they weren't taught properly in the first place. Tell me a 12-year-old that can write properly. They've never heard of cursive writing. They print. But they're taught about the dishonest ravings of Greta Thunberg. Indeed, one high school in the Illawarra District of New South Wales taught the Greta Thunberg propaganda in Year 7, teaching that Thunberg told the world that our generation have stolen my dreams, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing, we're at the beginning of a mass extinction. Funny with the energy crisis, eh? We haven't heard much, thankfully, from Greta Thunberg. In the year eight class at one high school, students were being made to fill out a questionnaire asking, when and how did you first decide you were heterosexual? 13-year-old girls and boys. It's creepy stuff. To whom have you disclosed your heterosexual tendencies? At one high school, students were made to kneel in homage to Black Lives Matter an openly neo-Marxist organisation that attacks the nuclear family and promotes gender fluidity. Why am I telling you this? Well, if there were to be refresher courses for teachers, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that some of these issues would be addressed? In other words, what is happening in the classroom? Are children being educated or indoctrinated? Well, this week, high school principals in New South Wales will have a three-day conference. Is the theme of the conference how can we improve educational outcomes? No. The theme will be phosphorescence, where teachers will listen to presentations on finding your light and rekindling your internal flame. Another session will take these educational derelicts through self-care and choosing their own adventure. Now, remember, this is at a time of massive staff shortages in schools, where one in five teenage boys is illiterate, over 20% of boys and 10% of girls can't punctuate sentences, spell simple words, or write a story in paragraphs. Between 36 and 46% of teachers are teaching subjects in which they have no special skill. A quarter of the maths teachers have no training in maths. This is Australia-wide. This is from the first ever survey last year of the Australian teacher workforce, a sample of 18,000 teachers. 20% of science teachers, this is Australia-wide, had no training in science. Yet governments are spending $116 billion of your money to achieve not much, but there's a conference going on in New South Wales at a flash hotel in Wollongong. And one of the keynote speakers is reportedly the left-wing journalist, Julia Baird, who will encourage attendees, school principals to, quote, Cop this, keep placing one foot on the earth, then the other to seek out ancient paths and forests, certain in the knowledge that others have endured before us, unquote. Mums and dads, if you don't think your children are being dudded, then may I respectfully suggest our mums and dads aren't doing the homework needed to enable them to know what is going on in our classrooms. Stay tuned for Mark Latham tomorrow night. I expect he'll be on fire about this stuff. Well, as you know, we've just come through a long weekend. The traffic to the snow was unbelievable. In Britain, it's Royal Ascot, Wimbledon and the Test Cricket. For thousands upon thousands in Sydney, it's the splendid, psychedelic, vivid. And then there are other Australians. Menzies called them forgotten Australians. Peter Dutton has talked about the forgotten people, which prompts the question, I suppose, who forgets them? When were they forgotten and how are they forgotten? Well, it brings me back to flood-ravaged Queensland and New South Wales. I spoke a couple of weeks ago about this crisis. On this program, we don't raise issues and forget them. I said then the Morrison government's response, or lack of it, to the bushfire crisis of 2019 and the floods earlier this year were no doubt contributing factors to his government's defeat. I said that when I look at these things, 
talk about them or write about them. I try to put myself in the shoes of those who've suffered. What would you do if everything you owned was destroyed by flood or fire? What would you say to your children who've lost everything? What would you say to the farmer who's lost all his stock? What would you say to the small businessman who's got nothing except the clothes he's standing in? How do you explain this future to your children? How do you evaluate the trauma and mental damage done to people in such communities when mental illness is an invisible affliction? No long weekend for them, just long and persistent suffering. I mentioned the Perite government in New South Wales has established an inquiry into the floods. Gladys Berejiklian, who's often afforded saintly status, created a body called Resilience New South Wales, allegedly to lead a whole of government disaster and emergency response from prevention right through to recovery. Well, this Resilience New South Wales mob are themselves a disaster. What about the response? Another disaster. This mob is headed by Shane Fitzsimmons, who was formerly the boss of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, but more often than not, was seen in a starched shirt with fancy epaulets. Many of these people caught up in the flood disaster received $1,000 per adult, $400 per child. That was the starting allocation. But this outfit, Resilience New South Wales, have an annual budget of $777 million. I said, if they'd been as bad as it's clear they have been, wind them up, put them into the soup kitchens and let them know what it's like to be without a job and give the $777 million to the people of Lismore and other flood victims. You might have noted in the Queen's birthday honours, some of the highest honours in the land were handed out to the people in charge of the pandemic response. Kerry Chant, Jeanette Young, she got the highest honour. Dr Brendan Murphy, that's the bloke you might remember, couldn't tell you how to define a woman. Funny, isn't it? How it often takes years to process these awards for some, and yet in no time at all, the highest awards have gone to these people whose edicts crushed business, put people out of work, children out of school, destroyed morale and imposed some of the most draconian and freedom-denying measures, the like of which we hope this country will never see again. Well, for my money, I would put Janelle Safin way above all of them. She is the state member for Lismore. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but she's 67 years of age. At the height of the flood in Lismore, she and two friends were on the veranda of a home, quote, hanging, sort of, on the rafters, and the water was coming up too quickly to stay inside. Now, I've told you this story before, it's worth repeating. She said there were three of us, and at some point it was swim or we go under. So I said, come on, we're in. They dived in. The trio managed to make their way to a tyre wedged under a tree. They hung on for dear life, 67 years of age, do you mind? Amazingly, their mobile phones were working. Janelle saw two people trapped in houses, one a woman who was screaming. Then one of Janelle Safin's staffers appeared from around the corner in an inflatable canoe. Janelle, hanging onto a tire under a tree for dear life, said, we're all right here, go for her. Janelle Safin sang out to another neighbour. They got him into the canoe and got him to safety. My point is, I think this marvellous woman is entitled to be listened to. And she joins me. Janelle Safin, I just want to say on behalf of everyone watching, you are unbelievable. Your courage will be honoured by the whole nation, whether or not you get one of those gongs that they gave out to Kerry Chan and <laughs> Jeanette Young. Now, you told the inquiry two weeks ago that Resilience New South Wales was, quote, institutionally incapable of doing the job. Just tell me firstly, though, about you diving into these flooded waters and you said it was swim or go under. And you said, come on, we're in. Now, as my old man would say, bloody hell, I mean, are you a strong swimmer? Look, luckily I am a strong swimmer, Ellen, and it was bloody hell, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... <laughs> and at one stage we'd been told to put our chairs on the table inside and I was watching the water come up and I can't say this word on air, but I said, we're sitting, you know what, ducks, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, we but got you, out. But you could have taken the inflatable canoe, but you gave it up to neighbours who were at risk. 
Yeah, well, when Harry came around the corner, he could hear my voice, you know, singing out, carrying on. And I said, and the woman, um, her name was Carmel, and I said, go into Carmel. And I stayed there because I am a good swimmer and I thought if he runs into trouble rescuing Carmel, who's 91, um, I will go in because even though I haven't done it for years, I remember my life-saving principles, you know, what to do. So I kept my ear out and the other old man, he, um, that was the funny bit, he said, who are you? Because I'm screaming at him, it's all right, we'll get you out. I said, I'm your state member, I come to get you. (laughs) (laughs) You are wonderful. Now, back to this Resilience New South Wales mob. You said they were missing missing in action in every way. You said they were unhelpful, yep. obstructionist, and you refused to deal with them. Just to amplify that. Okay. From day one, they were missing in action. We have evacuation centres. That's their job to run them. Yes, they're messy. Yes, it's chaotic because, you know, there's rescues, there's all sorts of things, people arriving wet, cold, traumatised with their animals, you know, with their hamsters, their dogs, cats, you know, whatever. And... Um, but that's the job of them to be ready and have it, you know, mm-hmm. ready to go. Yeah. It was just a mess. Locals mm-hmm. were running it. The university, even the vice-chancellor and deputy vice-chancellor, they were actually running it. And where and was I Fitzsimmons? Arrived. Where was Fitzsimmons? Oh, God knows. And um... <laughs> <laughs> Just let me ask you this. It's been a long weekend. People are holidaying, yeah. going to the snow, going overseas for Royal Ascot, Wimbledon. What are your people doing in flood-ravaged Lismore? Okay, a lot of people were very cold this weekend mm. and some people have moved back into their homes. There's no real structure. They still need to be cleaned. They don't have the walls, etc. They're cold. They're trying to make themselves warm. Mm. Some of them have lined their walls a little bit with cardboard. They've got lots of clothes on. You know, and I've read it's the coldest winter since 1930. So Mm. I said to the Premier last week, Premier, we need warmth for winter. Can you get your department to look at it. Now, resilience should be looking at that. They're visiting homes, so, you know, it'd be nice if they turned up with a gas heater or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they haven't. And the well, Premier just on that resilience, the Mayor it. said, the Mayor said, at the height of a, mm-hmm. we've spoken to the Mayor, at the height of a natural disaster, it's a 24-hour day, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job, and that's where resilience really struggled. They had a concept of, well, it's five o'clock, I'm going to go home. I mean... You, know, that's bizarre. Yeah. You told the inquiry that that this mob were unprepared for disaster. Totally unprepared. Look, if you know anything about disasters, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but even the principles of them, it's preparedness. That's the key. And you war game it. So you actually war game it beforehand in terms of what do we do, what if our staff get flooded, where do we go, who do we call on, how do we use local volunteers, you know, different agencies. Put this woman in you charge. You know, how do we be hey, on put, deck? put you in charge. Put you in charge. See, as I'm speaking to you now, how does anything mm-hmm. they are doing help the businessman get back on his feet, the farmer restock his farm. I'm really concerned about the trauma done to children going back to school. If you were in charge now, what is the most urgent need? Well, there's quite a few of them and you can do a few things at once. I would make sure some people had a bit of warmth. I would make sure that businesses in the CBD and industrial area that the commercial landlords got some support because the businesses can't stand up, the people who run them, without that support. We've got buildings that are gutted. I would make sure that they're built flood resistant. You know, they've done that in the Brisbane Valley. They've been working on a program and people aren't moving, but they're making it flood resistant. I just left them at the universities, the two guys who work on it, um, you know, have a program. So those sort of things. And I would say to people, you can have flexibility about pods and homes and villages. But the thing that's missing, Ellen, is a sense of urgency up here. When I talk with people who are charged with doing things, there's no sense of urgency. Mm. My community has that. I have that. Work out a few things that you can do and do them well. 
So see, I, we I've don't talk, have an economy. I, I, no, see, uh, no. I've talked for years about a national disaster fund, that every year, federal budget time, it amounts, say, 100 million each year, yes. and that wouldn't be missed in Commonwealth revenues of over 500 billion. Invest it, it's available for immediate release in emergencies such as yours. So how are people managing? We're going to run out of time here, but how are people managing sure. right now? I mean, people listening to you now... We have can't believe what you're telling them. How can we help? Okay. Um, by talking about it like we do, that helps through the media. You've got a voice. I've got a voice. We use it. Um, I've said to the Premier, talk to the Commonwealth. We need a package now. We need a package about build back home better. The state went alone, $20,000. The feds kicked in ten. I said it needs to be fifty. dollars like Yeah, Queensland. but go nowhere. That will help. That's it. Goes nowhere. Yeah, I know. I mean, can but Lismore survive? Can, Lis can Lismore survive where it is, or are you going to have to shift the city of Lismore somewhere else? I've never seen a city shift before, Alan. It's a big city. Mm. I haven't seen it shift before, and we have. And I said the frame has to be build back better. Some people will shift. That will need to happen. Build back better, and we have all those options, but we need to hit the ground running with what they are now. And what about and we, the kids? You know, I've looked at... What about the kids? Well, I've said that the New South Wales Mental Health Commissioner, who seems to be a really good person, knows her stuff, needs to be very involved. Our language does not talk to children. Mm. It just doesn't. The whole know. language everybody uses yeah. is not about kiddies. Look, I went to a preschool... I sat down on the ground with the kiddies and I talked with them. They talked to me about the Lovely. flood. Some were in it, some weren't. Lovely. Really good. We just can talk with them. You know, they're mm. our kids. We just have to find a way to communicate. Really important. Well, now listen. But resilience, New South Wales, got to go. Yeah, absolutely. Go. Yeah, get rid of them, put them in the soup kitchens, give the $777 million yep. budget to you and you'll manage it up there. Yep. You have had an extraordinary career of service. I mean, Janelle Safford was in the Legislative Council of New South Wales for eight years, the member for Page in Canberra for six years, now the member for Lismore since 2019. She was an official observer for the International Commission of Jurists at the 1999 independence referendum in East Timor. She was an Australian rep at the Global Forum of Women Political Leaders in Manila in 2000. She actually moved to East Timor to take up a position of chief political and legal advisor to the then Foreign Minister Jose Ramos Horta. She stayed there for three years in the rebuilding of the country through to Ramos Horta being elected Prime Minister and then President. No work, Janelle, is more important than what you've done for these people here. And so I just want to thank you. And listen, we're going to talk again. Give this mob two or three weeks to mobilise and I'll have you on again. And let's hope we can report some progress. But if there's anything else we can do, don't hesitate to shout. Thank you, Alan, and I'll, I'll certainly let you know, and I look forward to being back with you. Absolutely. There Thank she you. is. She's my Australian of the Year, that woman, Janelle Safin. She's the Labor member for the state seat of Lismore. Now, I spoke last week about tax and expenditure reform. Don't kid yourself that any government, state or federal, is keen on either. I mentioned the welfare bill, $196,000 million in 2020. I mentioned that you can't go to an accountant or a lawyer or a dentist or get your fence painted for nothing, but you can go to a doctor for nothing. Well, not really. The poor taxpayer has to pay. New Zealand have a Medicare co-payment. Tony Abbott talked about a Medicare co-payment. The media tore him apart. But Medicare in 2012 cost $19 billion. In 2022, $30 billion. $30,000 million. There's a New South Wales budget next week, but already we're seeing no end to spending promises, yet debt in New South Wales is forecast to rise beyond $120 billion in the next four years. Queensland government debt, over $100 billion. Victoria, out of control, over $200 billion. South Australia, $33 billion. And of course, Canberra, over a trillion dollars. And yet not a word about cutting expenditure. Given how bad government is in Canberra and how much they get wrong, do we need 250,000 public servants? Compulsory superannuation was meant to reduce the welfare bill, take people off the aged pension. It's not happened. But the tax breaks for superannuation are expected to cost almost $90 billion over the next four years. Unpaid hex debts are $96 billion. We subsidise foreign outfits who own wind farms. 
to the tune of $3 billion a year. I could go on and on. Waste is everywhere. Well, waste is one part of the equation. Tax reform is the other. You might recall that last week I detailed the tax proposal that there be an expenditure tax on everything, only about 2%, every transaction, and you could abolish all taxes, all taxes. I'll be returning to that. But now there's talk in New South Wales of a land tax replacing stamp duty. This has everybody excited, and we're told that next week's New South Wales budget will begin to phase out stamp duty in New South Wales. Well, let's not get too excited, because the Premier has said, oh, he can't go it alone, and phasing out stamp duty by allegedly introducing a land tax. I stress a land tax. I'll come to that in a minute. The New South Wales Premier said it would cost the state government billions of dollars in revenue, and he couldn't go it alone. He'd need to reach a formal agreement with the Commonwealth. I suspect the Labor opposition in New South Wales will have a field day with this. Stamp duty's been around since 1865. It averages about 4% of the purchase value of the property. The seller pays, which means many people in big houses avoid selling or downsizing because of the burden of stamp duty. No one denies that. However, what is a land tax? Well, there's currently a land tax in New South Wales on the unimproved value of your land. But currently you don't pay land tax on your home, known as your principal place of residence, or on your farm, known as primary production land, or on any land you own with total taxable value below the land tax threshold. Now, I won't go into the formula used to calculate current land tax. You need a degree in advanced maths. But the problem, as I've suggested, is it is not a land tax at all because not everybody who owns land pays land tax. And that's the political dilemma. Current land tax, as I said, is incurred on the unimproved value of the land, which is estimated by councils. But you can't have, as things currently stand, a broad-based land tax. Now, the issue proposed by the New South Wales government is to give buyers the option of paying a land tax on their new property or sticking with stamp duty. So, do you pay 40000 up front in stamp duty or $2,500 in land tax for every year that you own the home down the track? I suspect this proposal requires infinitely more work than a few bureaucrats in New South Wales have dedicated to it. On recent figures, households across Australia own land that is distinct from the property sitting on top of it worth over $5 trillion dollars up more than a trillion dollars in a decade. If you want to have a land tax, you'd have to widen the base. And in that way, that is make more people pay it. And in that way, you would reduce the amount paid. I've talked previously and often about a property owner's state tax, which would eliminate both land tax and stamp duty. Every property owner would pay a property owner's tax equal to a small multiple of the council rates. That would replace all revenue collected by land tax and stamp duty. There would be exemptions to those paying less than $300 to $500 per annum in rates. It would be collected quarterly by local councils. It would replace the current complicated land tax system with a simple transparent system. Now, to take New South Wales as an example, the anomaly is that 2 million New South Wales properties pay no land tax because of exemptions. But to collect enough revenue, 300,000 properties are burdened with almost $5 billion worth of land tax. The current system is a mess. I'm not sure the mess will be unscrambled by what the New South Wales government is now proposing. And if it needs the federal government to pick up the tab because of lost revenue, I can't imagine too much enthusiasm in Canberra as the new government has to sort out how to manage over a trillion dollars in debt. This could be a fizzer. All right, before we go, look, there is no shortage, I regret to say, of delusional people in the Liberal Party. Peter Dutton has a real job on his hands cleaning up the mess. You can start at the executive level. Who the hell's in charge of this dysfunctional outfit? Who allowed Morrison and Hawke to just do as they pleased in relation to pre-selections in New South Wales? And as for the parliamentary wing, well, the voters took care of that on May 21. Zimmerman gone who, by the way, is reportedly distressed about being turfed out of the seat of North Sydney, distressed about not being on a taxpayer-funded salary and not having to do much to earn it. 
Others like Katie Allen and Celia Hammond, fake Conservatives, gone. Scott Morrison's sidekick, Ben Morton, gone. Lucy Wicks, who voted against Tony Abbott and for Turnbull, has got her just desserts, gone. But speaking of Turnbull admirers, what about this Paul Fletcher, who's now, can you believe it, the manager of opposition business? Tony Burke will have a field day with him. Fletcher was the ABC loving communications minister in the Morrison government. At the start of the year, he announced that the ABC would receive a funding boost of $3.3 billion over three years. This was a move designed to win over inner city seats where his mates were facing fierce contests by the Teal independents. As Morris Newman wrote at the time, a former chair of the ABC and very eminent businessman, for nine years, coalition governments have tolerated the national broadcaster's defiant indifference to its charter and editorial policies. For nine whole years, they have turned blind eyes to its partisan and divisive agenda, grudging apologies and defamation payouts, unquote. Now, Morris Newman is the chairman of this company, ADH. Hit the nail on the head when he said, there are no consequences and there's no accountability. When 1.1 billion a year rolls in, regardless, why change? He said, it's a national scandal. Spot on, Morris. The poor taxpayer is getting rolled by a public broadcaster who has no interest in them or their struggles, merely occupied with witch hunts and broadcasting, with some exceptions, elitist left-wing opinions. Fletcher, a Liberal communications minister, who, by the way, never responds to correspondence. Oh, no, too precious for that. He propped this lot up. Well, now he strikes again, this time with the most ridiculous piece of writing which featured in the Weekend Australian. If you manage to read it without falling asleep, this was the guts of it. Fletcher argued that instead of ditching the wealthy inner city seats that were lost to the Teal independents, the Liberal Party should focus on winning them back. Presumably this means more funding to the ABC and backing net zero. The reason he's going on with this nonsense is because he suffered a swing against him of over 15%. Huge. But what about this for a laugh when he wrote on how to regain the seats? Quote, we need to remember that our record of strong economic management has been the key to these electorates being liberal for many decades. If economic conditions deteriorate and taxes rise under Labor, these fundamental liberal values will continue to resonate in these seats, unquote. Am I missing something? Are these the same strong economic managers who clocked up a trillion dollars of debt and never reigned in expenditure, adding to the inflationary pressures we're now experiencing today? Or maybe Fletcher is talking about his own strong economic management when he committed $3.3 billion of your money to the ABC. The coalition's strong economic managers, he says, inherited gross national debt at 20% of GDP. The Morrison-Frydenberg rule left gross national debt at 42.5% of GDP, forecast to climb to 44.9%. The Whitlam, oh, Whitlam, he couldn't manage the money. The Whitlam peak was 24.5. Paul Fletcher, you're treating Australians as mugs, perhaps because you won yourself. Quit writing boring columns and start revising the parliamentary standing orders because I think you're going to need them. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Good night.